I'd like to invite you to turn in your Bibles to Colossians chapter 1. We will be looking into the passage commencing with verse 21. In the previous section, the Apostle Paul had been reminding the Colossian Christians of the magnificence, the majesty of Christ, and had concluded that section by saying that God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in Christ and through him to reconcile to himself all things. Now he picks up on this idea of reconciliation and develops it with particular reference to the Colossian Christians. So we read from verse 21. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation if you continue in your faith, established and firm, not moved from the hope held out in the gospel. This is the gospel you have heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. Verse 28, we proclaim him admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone perfect in Christ. To this end, I labor, struggling with all his energy, which so powerfully works in me. When John Bunyan, the Bedfordshire tinker, was thrown in jail, he didn't sit there bemoaning his fate. He decided to write a book. The book, of course, that he wrote is probably the most famous allegory in the English language, Pilgrim's Progress. And in this allegory, Bunyan described the journey of the man Pilgrim, who with a great load of sin on his back was making his way from the slough of despond to the celestial city. Now, I pronounced it slough. I did check with a number of people here to find out how Americans pronounce it, and I came up with slough, slough, and slew. So you can take your pick just so long as you don't slough off while I'm talking. <laughs> the Apostle Paul uses a similar approach to the Colossians in this particular passage of Scripture. And whilst he doesn't use the picturesque, dramatic, allegorical form that Bunyan does, in effect, he's bringing the people to an understanding of where they were in the slough of despond and how they're heading towards the celestial city. In exactly the same way, we need to be thinking in terms of where we were and where we are and where we're going and how we can get there from here. Because the Christian life, Christian experience is a progression. It is a journey. And it is something that we are working on and having worked out in us day after day. And so I want to talk to you about getting there from here. Let me remind you that sometimes Christians tend to be a little bit hard on themselves. They've got high aspirations. They, they know what they're aiming to be, but they get very, very discouraged. They feel they're not getting anywhere. Well, it's a very simple antidote to that, and that is remember where you were and compare where you are with where you were, and you'll probably find a lot of things very, very encouraging. On the other hand, there's some Christians who get very complacent, and they say, hey, that's where I used to be, and look where I am now. I've arrived. And God says, uh-uh, no, think in terms of where you're going. 
and realize that there's a whole lot more that needs to be done in your life. In other words, in the Christian experience, if we're to be balanced, we need to be thinking of where we are in terms of where we were and of where we're going. Now, let me remind you, of course, that as we look into this passage of Scripture, it was written to believers in Jesus Christ. And I assume that there'll be some people listening to me now who are not believers in Christ. The tenses, therefore, will not necessarily apply to you. But listen very carefully, if you will, be so kind, to what we have to say, because much of what we have to say can be of help to you as well. First of all, then, talking to the Christians and also talking to us by the Holy Spirit, this passage of Scripture reminds us of where we Christians were. I refer to verse 21. This is what he says. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your mind because of your evil behavior. Notice, if you will, please, three things there. He says that people who are Christians recognize that previously they were alienated from God or estranged from God. The significance of this, of course, is very, very profound indeed because Christians believe that they were made by God for God and that the only way that they can live truly human lives is in terms of God. If a man or a woman, therefore, is made by God for God to live in union with God, but has lost God, then clearly there's something of great significance lacking in their lives. It has been pointed out that people reach their true humanity when they use their God-given ability to know God when they utilize their God-given ability to appreciate what they know of God, and when they take opportunity of expressing that appreciation for what they understand of God. That this is what sets us apart from all other created beings. However, if we are created by God for God, to know Him and to appreciate Him and to articulate that appreciation, but we've lost God, we're alienated from God, then clearly there is something very, very seriously wrong in our lives. Now, people will testify to the fact that they were alienated from God in different ways. Some will talk about an emptiness in their lives. They'll talk about something being missing in their lives. They'll talk about looking for satisfaction or self-fulfillment. What they're really saying is what the old theologians used to say, that there's a God-shaped blank inside us that we're alienated from God, and that we're only going to be fulfilled, we're only going to be satisfied when we find a God-shaped God to fill that God-shaped blank. Other people, of course, are much more antagonistic in their attitude to God. Although Paul points out that everybody who is alienated from God is to some degree antagonistic towards God as well. Notice, if you will, that he says in verse 21, you are alienated from God and were enemies in your minds. The word translated mind here is the equivalent of the word heart as it's used in the Old Testament. And so it doesn't just mean intellectually we argued against God. It means in terms of inner attitudes, there was an antagonism towards God. Now, of course, some of us can look back to days when that was very, very obvious. We were overtly antagonistic to God. We blasphemed His name. 
We shook, as it were, our fist in his face. We would deny his existence or doubt very much if he was there at all. And sometimes we would live lives that were clearly and blatantly opposed to all that he had told us. We were alienated from the life of God and we were antagonistic towards him. Other people, of course, are covertly antagonistic to God. That means that they don't do anything overtly in opposition to God, but they just disregard Him. They simply regard God as being irrelevant. They regard Him as being something considerably less than God in their lives. And that is fundamental antagonism to God. If God is God, to fail to acknowledge Him as God is a fundamentally antagonistic attitude. And so, whether we are overtly or were overtly antagonistic to God, or covertly antagonistic to God, Christians can testify to the fact that at one stage in their experience, they were alienated from God, they were antagonistic to God. Thirdly, they were active in evil works, in evil behavior. Paul puts it, once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your mind because of your evil behavior. Those who are estranged from God, those who are either covertly or overtly are antagonistic to God, clearly are not living lives that please God. They are doing things that by God's standards are totally unsatisfactory. Now, of course, it may be that some of us can look back to lives that were just inexpressibly evil. And we have been saved from all that, and we are so grateful and so glad. And others of us say, hey, listen, I was never like that. I was just a normal, decent, law-abiding citizen. The problem, of course, is that such are our standards of decency, and such are our laws today, that it is possible to be a thoroughly decent, law-abiding citizen and engaging in evil behavior as far as God is concerned. We need to measure our behavior not against normally accepted principles. We need to be measuring our behavior against what God has said in His law. And Christians have no problem agreeing with what Paul says. In effect, they say, yes, I remember when I was alienated from God. Yes, I remember when I was antagonistic in my attitude towards God. Yes, I remember when I was active in evil behavior. And I was not proud of it, and I'm so glad that something happened so that that is no longer my condition. Let me pause here just for a moment, however, and say in parentheses that if I'm talking to somebody who is an unbeliever, it is very, very important that you understand, and I say this firmly but lovingly to you, it is very important that you understand that the person who is uncommitted to the Lord is a person who in God's sight is alienated from him, antagonistic to him, and active in behavior that is unacceptable. And the profundity of this is recognized when we accept the fact that we are accountable to God for the lives that we live. Do not assume that because we're decent and law-abiding that that is all that God requires. God requires us to accept the fact that all of us, without exception, are alienated, antagonistic, and active in evil behavior, and this needs to be forgiven, and this needs to be turned from. There are some people whose lives are so bad, whose lives have fallen into such a shambles, that you have no difficulty at all pointing this out to them. They say, hey, don't tell me, don't rub it in, man. I know, get me out of here. But there are other people who find it very, very hard to accept this. 
because they've decided that they are living lives that are perfectly acceptable. They may be to themselves, they may be to society, but not to God. And he's the one who counts. Let's move on then from where we were to where we are. And in verse 22, Paul explains to the Christians, but now. Now notice that this is in marked contrast to verse 21, where he says, once you were, past tense, once you were, past, but now, present. He is moving from where they were to where they are. And there are two particularly important things we should note here. First of all, he explains to them that they are reconciled to God. And secondly, he explains to them that they are justified by God. Now, reconciled and justified are not words we use every day in our normal vocabulary. They are words we should understand as far as spiritual experience is concerned. Notice, if you will, this idea of being reconciled, first of all, in terms of divine initiative. We read in verse 22, but now he, that is God, he has reconciled us to himself. You get that? Now he has, excuse me, now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy, etc. The initiative for our reconciliation to God is with God. Now, it may be that some of us have got the mistaken idea that we decided one day, quote, to accept Jesus as our Savior. Now, of course, that was great if we did it, but we must not let that terminology move us away from a profound spiritual truth. And it is this. Our salvation, our reconciliation does not originate with us. Our salvation originates with God. It is God who has reconciled us to himself. It is not we who do it ourselves. If we fail to recognize this, we will have an inadequate view and understanding of the grace of God. It was the grace of God that determined that we should be reconciled. It was the grace of God that even desired that we should be reconciled to him. It was the grace of God that determined how we should be reconciled. It was the grace of God who made the means of reconciliation available to us. It was divine initiative. These people who are Christians in Colossae need to be reminded that they are what they are as opposed to what they were because of the divine initiative. He, in grace, reconciled them to himself. Notice, secondly, a very important thing, and that is that the divine incarnation is involved too. Verse 22 again, Now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death. Remember that these people in Colossae needed to bear constantly in mind that the only reason they could be reconciled to God, their alienation taken away, their antagonism done away with, their evil activities forgiven, the only basis on which it could happen was that God in Christ had come into the world in the incarnation that assumed our humanity, had lived physically among us, and died a physical death 
on an awesome cross. He is strongly underlining the necessity of the physical death of Christ on the cross as the basis of our salvation. It was necessary to remind the Colossians of this, you remember, because they were being subjected to a heresy that was suggesting that experiences unrelated to the physical death of Christ could be the basis on which they would find fullness of life. This was related to an incipient Gnostic heresy that was coming into their experience. We don't need to concern ourselves about the Gnostics. We do need to concern ourselves, however, about modern heresies that may be infiltrating the contemporary church. For instance, you'll find tremendous emphasis on people finding fullness of life or self-fulfillment. You'll find lots and lots of people trying to get their lives integrated or everything put together. You'll find great emphasis on relationships being reconciled. And I'm talking about the Christian church. The problem, however, is that in this search for individual fulfillment or for relational reconciliation, there is such an emphasis at times that the death of Christ as the basis of our faith the basis of our reconciliation to God, to others, and to ourselves is overlooked. And perhaps we need to remind ourselves that there is salvation in none other. There is no other name under heaven amongst men given whereby we must be saved. And this name is Christ, and this Christ is a crucified Christ. We dare not move into any type of, quote, reconciliation ministry that ignores the death of Christ. It becomes sub-Christian as soon as we do. But those who are true believers recognize that they are what they are, reconciled to God, first of all because of the divine initiative, and secondly because of divine incarnation. Christ was born in Bethlehem with Calvary in mind. Christmas had Good Friday in mind right from the very beginning. Notice also that he strongly emphasizes the death of the Lord Jesus again. Verse 22, Now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death. The only basis upon which sinful man can be reconciled to God is through the death of Christ. The wages of sin is death. We either pay it ourselves or allow Christ to pay it for us. It is his death which is a substitute for our death. In his death on the cross, it is possible for us to miss out from that awful eternal death, separation from God, because we put our trust in him. But if we want to get right with God by doing an end run around the cross, forget it. And if we want sins forgiven on any other basis than the death of Christ, forget it. We have got to recognize that the basis of reconciliation is divine initiative, divine incarnation, and divine intervention in the death of Christ on our behalf. Perhaps one of the best illustrations of reconciliation is in the famous story of the prodigal son. 
You remember how the father bestowed all kinds of benefits on the son. The son went his own way, went into a far country, if you like, alienated from the father. You remember that he wasted his substance on riotous living, looking for self-fulfillment, finished up in a pigsty trying to beg some husks off the pigs, really finished up in the pits. One day he's thinking, and he comes to himself, and he says, I will arise and go to my father. The father was waiting, ready, willing to receive him to himself. The son is most wonderfully reconciled to the father. In the same way, God the Father has done all that is necessary for absolutely everybody on the face of God's earth to be reconciled to him. But remember, the Father didn't go down in the pigsty looking for the Son. The Father lays everything ready for the Son to be reconciled to him. In the same way, God stands at the cross opens his arms wide and said, I've done everything necessary for absolutely everybody to be reconciled to me. And now he says, you come and be reconciled to God. Christians say, I've done it. I've done it. This is where I was, but now this is where I am. I have been reconciled to God. The second thing that we notice here is that he talks about the fact that we Christians are justified by God too. I refer again to verse 22. But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight, without blemish, and free from accusation. Notice, if you will, the expression, to present you. The word could be used in a variety of forms, but one legitimate application of it here is to describe a law court in which somebody is presented before the judge. The judge hears the evidence, passes sentence, pays the sentence himself, and then declares the prisoner free to go with no further charges against him. That is basically one of the ideas of justification. When a person who is alienated from God, antagonistic in attitude, and active in evil, is reconciled to God, something else happens. That person is justified by God. God brings him into his presence and declares him utterly and totally forgiven. No further charges to answer. To be justified, as somebody has said, is to be just as if I'd never sinned at all. Let me illustrate this for you. Just supposing somebody living in a nice, quiet neighborhood does something very bad indeed. The television cameras arrive. They interview the neighbors of the person who did the very bad thing. And the neighbors say things like this, Oh, he's a very nice, quiet man, walked his dogs and cut his grass and was a good neighbor, never gave me no trouble at all. I never bothered with him and he never bothered with me. And I can't believe that anything like this could happen in, in our neighborhood. I just, I just don't know what to say. And we've had many of those exhilarating interviews on our television <laughs> screens. The the man who's done the bad thing is then brought into court, he's found guilty, he's packed off to jail, and 20 years later he comes out and he goes back to his neighborhood, and you'd think after 20 years the people would have forgotten, wouldn't you? 
And you think after 20 years in jail, the people would say, boy, he's paid his dues. Let's receive the guy back again. But often that isn't the case. Often he finds that he's not welcome in the neighborhood. Guilt still attaches to him. I got great news for you. When you are justified by God, you're welcome back in God's neighborhood. He doesn't keep hitting you over the head with what you did. He doesn't keep laying the guilt trip on you. You're justified. You are justified. You are presented in his presence, holy, without blemish, free from accusation. Now, not only is this presentation important in understanding justification, but also there's a proclamation. God proclaims this to be the case. There's a very real sense in which a Christian can look back and say, that's what I was, but this is what I am. There is now, therefore, in Christ Jesus, no condemnation. I am forgiven I am free, no guilt attaches, I have been justified. It's important that Christians be reminded of this, because when they are refreshed in memory that Christ took the initiative for this, that Christ died in order to purchase this, and that they truly are reconciled and justified, those Christians who understand it are overwhelmingly grateful. Gratitude characterizes their lives. They become people who are constantly saying, how can I express my gratitude? They want to live faithfully. They want to live obediently. They want to live willingly and joyfully in the presence that union with Christ affords to them. Why? Because they know they have been reconciled. They know they have been justified. It's a wonderful, wonderful thing to bear in mind where you were, but it's also significantly important that you understand where you are, if you're a Christian. But then there's a third aspect that Paul brings in here, with the rather ominous little word with which verse 23 commences. That ominous little word is, if. Now, this will cause some consternation. Let's get the theme here. Let's get the overriding statement by going back to verse 22. But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation if... If what? If you continue in your faith, established and firm not move from the hope held out in the gospel. Here he's talking about what the theologians call the perseverance of the saints. There's a very real sense in which we've got to understand that those who are reconciled and those who are justified are those who continue in the faith. How can you tell if a person is justified? How can you tell if a person is reconciled? Or put it simply, how can you tell if a person is a real Christian? Well, all kinds of tests are given for this. Sometimes people will say, that person is a real Christian because I remember 10 years ago when a certain evangelist came to town and the invitation was given, they got up out of their seats and they walked to their front and that's it. We haven't seen hide a hair of them since that time. They've shown no interest whatsoever, but I clearly remember them getting up out of their seat and walking to the front. 
Some people will say, ah, I know that person is a Christian because I remember quite distinctly when they were a small child, they were presented in their church, either in baptism or in dedication, and they have shown no real interest ever since, but they're Christian because they're clearly not pagans. They were introduced in the fellowship of believers. Well, hold it a minute. Hold it a minute. What Paul is saying here is a very, very important point. He says, those who are justified and those who are reconciled, truly reconciled, truly justified, persevere in the faith. They continue in the faith. They are well-founded, like a solid building on good foundations in the faith. They are not easily moved away from it. They are loyal to the faith. Not only that, they have their eyes fixed on the end of their faith, the hope that is in the gospel. They are utterly convinced of the faith. They are confident in the faith. They keep on keeping on. So Paul gives a very important reminder here, and it is this, that you don't just make a snap decision and then forget about God, that you don't just come up and say, sure, I'm a Christian, and then do not even be interested in behaving Christianly. Those who are truly justified and those who are truly reconciled persevere in the faith. They continue. They're founded. They're rooted. They're loyal. They're confident. They're convinced. They're growing. They're progressing. And how much we need to encourage each other in the understanding of this truth. F.F. F. Bruce, eminent British theologian, says, continuance, that is in the faith, continuance is the test of reality. Continuance is the test of reality. So let's pause for a minute now. How do you fit in so far? Can you, as a believer, look back and say, that's what I was? Absolutely. That is a good description of me. Alienated from God, antagonistic in attitude, active in evil behavior. That's me. But, praise God, because of His initiative, because of His grace, because of all that He did in Christ on the cross, I have been reconciled to God. I have been justified, and I sense in my heart that ongoing continuance in the faith I thank God for His grace in my life. I demonstrate my thankfulness by an attitude of obedience and continuance in the faith. Can you say that? That is what Paul is encouraging the Colossians to recognize. But then he moves on to the third thing, and he talks about where we are going. And for this, we need to go through the rest of this section. Now, there's more material than we can possibly get through, but we'll certainly touch on it so that we might get a well-rounded picture here of what he's talking about. Let me, first of all, remind you that he is talking about the end of our faith. Let's go right to to the end of the section, if you pardon the unconscious pun there. Verse 29, "...to this end I labor, struggling with all his energy, which so powerfully works in me." Now, if you read that verse, what would you ask yourself? To which end? And, of course, you go to the previous verse where he says, so that we may present everyone perfect in Christ. To this end, I labor. 
We have got to understand that there is an end to our faith, or an objective in our faith. When we come to an experience of Christ, it isn't just that we look in the past and say, my sins are forgiven. And it isn't just that we look at the present and say, I feel so good about myself. We have got to be looking into the future and saying, where on earth is all this going? There is an end, there is an objective, there is a consummation of our faith. And we live in the light of that all the time. Notice, if you will, in verse 23, he talks about the hope of the gospel. Notice in verse 27, he talks about the hope of glory. The word hope is a dominant theme in the Christian gospel. Gospel, as you know, means good news. I submit to you that there's no good news if there's no hope. For that's one of the things that people are looking for in all generations and in all cultures. Hope. Is there any hope? What is going to happen to me? What is the world coming to? Scripture says, yes, for the believer, there is tremendous hope locked up in the gospel. It is the hope of glory. What does that mean? It means that we are confident of the fact that when we die— We will be raised in newness of life as a result of Christ's resurrection, and we will see God in all his glory. But more significantly than that, those of us who have been reconciled and justified will not only see his glory, we will share his glory for all eternity. Where is my faith heading? What is the end of my faith? Answer, The end of my faith is that I will see the glory of God, I will share in the glory of God for all eternity. When I'm dead, I'm not done with. When I'm dead, I will die in Christ to be raised in Him and to share His glory. That's the hope of the gospel. That is the hope of glory. But in addition to that, he talks about the promise of perfection. He says that the day is coming when we will actually be presented holy and blameless and faultless, perfect in his sight. Now, there's a sense in which we are justified to that position now, but it will become actual then. Always remember that Scripture talks about our position, but then it talks about the practicality of our position too. When I joined the Royal Marines, they gave me a uniform— but they wouldn't let me wear it for months. I was very upset about that. The only reason I joined the Marines was so I could wear the uniform. The reason they wouldn't let me wear the uniform was that I was positionally a Marine. If I had gone away, I would have been AWOL, and they'd have hauled me back and thrown me in the brig. I was positionally a Marine, but they wouldn't allow me out in that uniform until I had learned practically how to behave in a manner commensurate with my position. In exactly the same way, there is a position of justification. I'm as justified as I'm ever going to be as holy and as blameless and without accusation in God's sight as I'm ever going to be, but practically I'm not holy. Practically I'm not blameless. Practically you can bring all kinds of accusations against me, and some of you do. And some of them are justified, and some of them 
you've got a problem. Anyway, we won't go into that. But the point is this, that we are positionally justified, but there is a coming day when we will be perfected, practically. And we will stand before God without a hint or a trace of anything that can be accused, nothing blemishing us, absolutely perfect in our sight. That's where we're heading, folks. That's where we're heading. So when we think in terms of our spiritual experience— We think of where we were, we think of where we are, but we constantly bear in mind where we are going. Constantly bear in mind where we are going. Now then, when Christ appears, the Greek word is parousia here. I thought I'd throw in a little Greek just to keep you honest here. At the parousia, at the appearing of Christ, When we appear with him, we will appear in him in glory. That's when we'll be perfected. But, and here's the big thing, if we know that is where we're going, and if we know where we are, we will want to be progressing in our practical experience of Christ. Practically, we'll want to progress in holiness. Practically, we will want to progress so that there are less and less things of which we can be accused. Practically, we will want to grow in grace. And that's what it means when on the basis of being justified and reconciled, I know where I'm going and I live in the light of it. All right, let's take a little breather here. Look back. Can you say to yourself, that's where we were? Now look at your life today. Can you say, and that's where we are. And then look ahead and say, and that's where we're heading. And in the light of where we were, and in the light of where we're going, we live today where we are. So grateful that I'm no longer where I was. So concerned that I'm still not what I ought to be. But pressing on to know him more fully the end of our faith. But then finally, let's look at the means to the end of which Paul speaks here. We can touch on these very briefly indeed. There are two means that I want to identify for you. First of all, what he calls the mystery. Secondly, what he calls the ministry. These two things are the means whereby we are being perfected. We are growing in grace, etc., etc., What do we mean by the mystery? Well, he talks about a mystery that has been kept hidden for ages and generations, but is now disclosed to the saints. To them, God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery. You say, wow, what an introduction. I can't wait. What is this mystery? Which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Bit of an anticlimax, isn't it? Until you look at those three monosyllabic words, Christ in you. What he is saying is of great, powerful significance. He is saying that the Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, rose again, and in the person of the Holy Spirit, lives in us. In us. What he is saying is that even Gentiles can discover this. Christ is in you, with the emphasis on the you. But he wants to emphasize not only that he's in you, He wants to emphasize not only that he's in you, but he wants to emphasize that it is Christ who is in you. 
The great, exciting, thrilling truth of the Christian gospel is that Jesus Christ, who died for me, lives in me to be the powerful dynamic of a new life. And surely that is something that the Colossians need to be reminded of. They're being tempted to go off into all kinds of other esoteric experiences. They're being encouraged to get off into all kinds of mystical things. They're encouraged to do things that are moving away from the centrality of Christ incarnated, crucified, risen, and indwelling. And Paul brings them back. He says, oh, no, you don't. The thing that really is going to work in your life more than anything else is that Jesus Christ is alive in you by His Spirit. You don't need to be looking for this. You don't need to be chasing after that. You don't need to be listening to people who are coming up with all kinds of agendas and all kinds of wonderful things that are going to teach you the secret of this or the secret of that. The secret is no longer a secret. The mystery has been revealed. The non-secret is that Christ is in you. And that Christ living in you is himself mighty on your behalf. And this is something that the Christians of Colossae and the Christians in every corner of the world need to be reminded of constantly. The end of our faith is that we will be perfected and share His glory. The means to that end practically working out in our lives is that Christ is at work in our lives. Now, can you identify that? Can you see that? Can you see the ways in which the indwelling Lord Jesus is changing you from the inside out? This is the continuance of your faith. But then he talks about ministry as means as well. The Apostle Paul says, Now, I am committed to helping you to this end. Verse 29, To this end I labor. Notice that he says quite a bit about himself here as a minister or a servant of the gospel. The word is diakonos, the word from which we get deacon. Sometimes translated deacon, sometimes servant, sometimes minister. The idea is the same, that anybody who ministers serves. And so he says it is necessary for me to be serving among you because I want to be encouraging you in your growth, in your development, in your maturity. I want to get you from where you were to where you are, but I want you to get you from where you are to where you're going. And to this end, I am serving among you. It's very interesting to notice in verse 28. He says, We proclaim him, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom, so that we may present everyone perfect in Christ. Now, I like the NIV, but I don't like their their version of that verse. For three times in the Greek, the Apostle Paul uses the expression, every man, every man, every man. Warning every man, teaching every man, that we might present every man. He's trying to get something across. It is that what he is doing, he is wanting to do for every single believer. I tell you, that verse has been resting heavily on me all week. Because I think of all the believers around here. I think of where a whole lot of unbelievers are around here. I think of where people were. I think of where people are. I think of where we're all heading. 
And I say to myself, how on earth can we fulfill this commission of so working with every person that we might see God graciously at work in every person's life? Well, the answer is that a handful of, quote, ministers can't. And we're reminded again of the fact that all of us believers have a ministry to each other. And the ministry that we have to each other is always in terms of where we were and where we are and where we're heading. And now with that in mind, let's look at what he says about the ministry. He says ministry means suffering. Now I rejoice in what was suffered for you, and I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's affliction for the sake of his body, which is the church. If you're going to minister, you're going to suffer. That's why a lot of folks will skip ministry and just get into all kinds of Mickey Mouse stuff. They don't want to suffer. They don't want to take the wraps. They don't want to get the rough edges knocked off. They don't want to get themselves in a position where they have to voluntarily do without a whole lot of things that legitimate that they could enjoy. But for the sake of ministry, they will sacrifice. Ministry means suffering. Ministry means service. Not having people serve me, but serving other people. Verse 25, the word here translated commission, is stewardship. Ministry means God has committed to me, has entrusted to me a ministry. I do it as unto him as a good steward. Ministry means sharing, sharing the truth with people, warning people, teaching people, encouraging people, sticking with people, keeping at people, keeping after people. This is ministry. All this is necessary. And ministry means struggling too, because let's face it, to try and get people from where they were to where they should be, and to try and get people from where they are to where God wants them to be, you struggle, 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 struggle all the time. Does this sound depressing? It really isn't. Because verse 29 finishes up on this great note. To this end I labor struggling. Wouldn't it be awful if he stopped there? But he doesn't. To this end I labor, struggling with all his energy, which so powerfully works in me. And we come back to that fundamental truth of Christian experience, which is Christ in you. And when Christ by his Spirit is alive in you, his energy energizes you for the struggle. When Christ by His Spirit is at work in you, His energy energizes you for the sacrifice. His energy energizes you for the sharing and for the service. He makes the difference. And as this ministry goes on, as we share the mystery of Christ being in us, the open secret of Christ being alive within us, as these things become more and more applicable to each one of us, We know what we're doing. We're working with people where they were to bring them to where they are all the time, bearing in mind where we're going. And so in conclusion, I ask you a simple question. It's not easy to answer, but the simple question is this. In the light of this passage of Scripture, where would you say you are spiritually today?
in the light of this passage of Scripture, where would you say you are spiritually today? Let's pray together. Dear Heavenly Father, it is so good for us to remember what it is you're trying to do in people's lives. It's not very complimentary for us to be told that we're alienated from God, enemies in our minds, and engaged in evil behavior. But when we listen to what you're saying, we know it's true. And we repent of it and seek forgiveness for it, and we ask to be reconciled. And we are so thankful that you have given us the basis of reconciliation, that is Christ's death on the cross, that your arms are extended warmly to all of us, and that when we are reconciled to you, we are justified. And that this justification and this reconciliation is proved by the ongoing continuance in the faith. We thank you, dear Lord, that this continuance leads us into all kinds of growth and maturity and change. And this is effected through the ministry of godly people as we share our lives with each other and through that indwelling open secret of Christ alive within us. In the light of where we're heading, dear Lord, we cannot be satisfied with where we are. But in the light of where we were, we're so grateful that we are where we are. And so keep us in this tension that we might be grateful for what you have done and constantly aspiring to go deeper in you. For any unbelievers who are here this morning, we pray and ask simply that they would understand these things and respond appropriately. For we pray in Christ's name. Amen.